0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? You should check out Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code Circle for 20% off their order anytime, and there is always free shipping within the United States. Again, that is secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Happy Saturday, everybody, and welcome back to The Circle Opens. Um, I know sometimes I usually give you guys a little bit of um, king news that has come out over the week um, before I dive into the episode. Um, I don't have a lot to share with you this week. Um, I know a few weeks ago it was announced that The Stand, uh, the 1994 miniseries directed by Mick Garris, would have a release on Blu-ray. I had kind of given up hope that they would do this because Mick Garris had given an interview in April about how it was the way that they had filmed The Stand uh, for ABC would make it just too difficult and too much of a process to uh, transition over into a Blu-ray HD kind of um, format. However, <laughs> that it turned out not to be true because they are uh, going to release the stand-on Blu-ray on September 24th. I'm very excited. I saw some of the uh, before and after photos of the restoration, um, which you can see those photos at Bloody Disgusting, or you can check them out on my Instagram at The Circle Opens. Um, the color looks really great. Um, I'm hoping that the picture will be a little bit more crisp, uh sharper. Um, but I think it's gonna look fantastic and I think I'm probably <coughs> excuse me, I'm probably going to watch this edition um when I get around to watching the miniseries to review and talk about on this podcast. Um, also semi exciting news I guess, but I will be giving away a copy of the Blu-ray. I will be giving away a copy of The Stand um, for anybody who is following me on my Instagram at The Circle Opens. Um, I haven't posted the contest yet. I'm not going to do that until September 1st. But if you would like to win a copy of the Blu-ray and you live within the United States, uh, head on over to Instagram if you have one and give me a follow. And I will be posting that con- uh, that contest in just a couple of weeks, so keep an eye out for that. I also want to take a few moments to say thank you to everybody who has left me a rating and/or review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. I guess. Now that's just Apple Podcasts, I don't know, I keep saying iTunes, but um, the reviews and the ratings are very encouraging, and I appreciate every single one, so thank you all uh, for doing that for me. And heading into this episode, I also want to say that I know in the first episode I explained that I would be talk, uh, talking about the book and taking this podcast chapter by chapter regardless of length. However... Next week's chapter 15 is like literally one page. I mean, maybe one and a half pages, uh, depending on which format or edition you're reading it in. So today you all get a treat as I'll be covering chapters 14 and 15. And the little, the tiniest little OCD part of me is kind of um, fighting this because I've had the way that the episodes are staggered. Um, episode one is chapter one, episode two has been chapter two. And I know, um, that's, I guess that's not entirely true because chapter one or episode one was the prologue, which is pre chapter one, but it's going to throw off. (laughs) It's going to throw me off completely in terms of how that looks, but I got to let it go because I'm going to cover 14 and 15 today. So let's just get right to it. So, a brief recap of last week in Chapter 13, we met Dietz, who was sent into Stu Redman's room to answer questions. And you can't see me, but I'm doing the air quotes there. (laughs) He didn't have a whole lot to tell Stu, claiming most of the information Stu wanted uh, to know has remained classified. We did, however, find out that the majority of the people that accompanied Stu uh, to Atlanta from Arnett have since passed away, But for a small handful of them, like Hank Carmichael and Ava Hodges, one of Ralph Hodges' kids, Ralph also has passed away. We also know that Stu is more or less uh, officially immune to the super flu, and they want to know why and how, uh, which is why they're still running tests on him. Stu loses his temper a couple of times, uh, especially after discovering, you know, a lot of his friends have died, but he gets... A tiny bit of revenge on Dietz, um, on Dietz's blasé demeanor, I guess, by faking a coughing fit and subsequently scaring Dietz into desperately trying to escape the room, Stu has agreed then to continue the tests um, because Stu has realized that uh, he has a little bit of power here. And that night, he dreams of a place with rows of corn and sunshine and beautiful music. And this is where Stu dreams, he thinks to himself that this is where he needs to go. But the dream shifts quickly into a nightmare and he sees something else in the corn. The man with no face. This leads us to chapter fourteen and we remain in Atlanta but not with Stu. Today we're going to relax a bit with Colonel Dietz, who is recording his Project Blue Report, including replaying his conversation with Stu, who has been given the code name Prince. It is 11.45 p.m. when uh, Dietz is recording. And he talks about how scared um, Stu slash Prince made him during his coughing fit, his fake coughing fit. Dietz admits he was angry enough to want to hit Stu, uh, but he's not angry anymore. Because even for a brief moment, Stu managed to put Dietz in his shoes. And Dietz suddenly knew how it felt to shake in them. Dietz describes Stu as a bright man. Once you get past uh, the Gary Cooper exterior, and he's, quote, one independent son of a bitch, end quote. Dietz recognizes that, um, I think, the same thing that Stu did at the end of Chapter 13 and the fact that, you know, they need Stu. He has the power to mess things up royally for them if he really wanted to do it. Uh, And because Stu has no family in our net or anywhere else, they can't really uh, threaten him or blackmail or strong arm him by, you know, threatening his family. Um, And I know Stu has a brother named Bryce, uh, which was mentioned uh, in Chapter 1 when we first met Stu, but I don't know. Maybe uh, they simply don't know about him or uh, King forgot about him. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So anyway, um, Deniger is the man who had been sent in uh, to try and get Stu to cooperate after Stu gave the nurse, Patty Greer, a hard time. And Deniger has, of course, offered to find some volunteers to essentially muscle Stu into cooperating with them. And I, you know, by muscle, he means beat the crap out of. Uh, But Dietz is of the mind that you catch more flies with honey than vinegar, of course. Uh, And he he admits that it may come to violence. However, uh, he feels that it might take more muscle than Denninger uh, thinks to get Stu beaten into complacency. Um, Stu is not really uh, someone to be messed around with. I think that Dietz recognizes that, whereas Denninger did not. Um, so, Dietz is willing to play along with what Stu wants and needs in order to get their test run. And we can see here that Dietz is extremely tired. Uh, he has not slept much, you know, and that's not hard to imagine considering what they're dealing with at the moment. He begins to recount his records as of 2200 hours, which is 10 p.m. Uh, Henry Carmichael died while Dietz was talking to Stu, and our cop, Joe Bob Brentwood, or Joseph Robert Brentwood, as Deeds calls him, but you guys know that I prefer Joe Bob. Uh, He died 30 minutes prior to Deeds' recording this report. We find out that they had given Joe Bob a vaccine, which he initially showed some positive response to. Uh, His fever broke, the swellings in his glands went down, and he even managed to eat some toast and a poached egg. He was clear-headed, asking questions about where he was, All very good signs, um, all things considered. But then, quote, around 2400 hours, the fever came back with a bang, delirious. He broke the restraints on his bed and went reeling around the room, yelling, coughing, blowing snot, the whole bit. Then he fell over and died. Kaboom. The team believes that it's the vaccine that killed Joe Bob. It made him better, but he was getting sick again anyway before the vaccine did him in. So, their first attempt at a vaccine to stop this super flu has already failed spectacularly um, and probably killed somebody. And then we get a status update on Eva Hodges, whose code name is Princess. Um, <clears throat> this kind of made me a little sad because she's four years old and Deez is declassifying her from Princess back to Eva Hodges. Uh, she had seemed normal like Stu, not a sniffle in her. But her post-lunch blood pressure check showed a drop and then a rise, which is the only diagnostic tool, um, apparently, that they have for this thing, um, is the blood pressure. Uh, Denninger had showed Dietz slides of Eva's septum, which were full of incubators for the virus. And Dietz is wondering how Denninger can know where the virus is and what it looks like, uh, yet he can't stop it. And honestly, Denninger apparently does not understand this either. From here, we learn about the flu and its many stages. Um, and actually, this is this is a really good description from King to kind of explain just how bad this virus is and why the vaccine can't stop it, um, and also why some people are dying much quickly, uh, much more quickly than others. Uh, we learn that some people skip a stage, and some may backtrack a stage. <laughs> some may do uh, both. But he says, "quote." Some people stay in one stage for a relatively long time, and others zoom through all four as if they were on a rocket sled. One of our two clean subjects is no longer clean. The other is a 32-year-old redneck who seems to be as healthy as I am. Deniger has done about 30 million tests on him and has succeeded in isolating only four abnormalities. Redman appears to have a great many moles on his body. He has a slight hypertensive condition, too slight to medicate right now. He develops a mild tick under his left eye when he's under stress. And Denninger says he dreams a great deal more than average, almost all night, every night. They got that from the standard EEG series they ran before he went on strike. And that's it. I can't make anything out of it. Neither can Dr. Denninger, and neither can the people who check Dr. Demento's work. I really enjoy getting this kind of outlook, um, this outside look into Stu. Yes, he's a redneck, okay, Uh, he's from a small town in Arnett, Texas, but Dietz has described him as being fairly bright and independent with a Gary Cooper exterior. We learn that Stu has a tick under his eye when he's stressed, Um, he has moles on his body, hypertensive condition, Um, but the one thing that really sticks out here uh, is that he dreams a lot, Uh, more than the average person every night, all night. And we already got a glimpse into these dreams in the last chapter. So has this always been the case? Uh, does Stu remember his dreams all the time, or does he just wake up with a feeling of what they were? The dreams are the important thing here, and um, the fact that he's having them consistently. Um, it doesn't really answer if he's been having if he dreams consistently before he came to Atlanta, or if this is a new development for him. Uh, Deeds admits that he is scared, and he voices this to Starkey. If you guys remember, General Starkey is the man who could not uh, seem to tear his gaze away from those monitors that were looking into the biological weapons facility in California, um, where the man had died with his face in his pea soup. So this report is going to Starkey, and Dietz explains that nobody but a very smart doctor will be able to diagnose this. Um, It will look like the common cold, and the, the worst thing is nobody goes to the doctor anymore except for something uh, grave like pneumonia or a lump in the breast. So by the time this hits the worst stages, it will be too late. And I mean, from from the sounds of it, it is too late, whether you're diagnosed early on or not, especially if some people skip a stage and some people experience backtracking and uh, others zoom right through and just fall over dead. Um Dietz says that, uh, quote, they're going to stay home, drink fluids, and get plenty of bed rest, and then they're going to die. Before they do, they're going to infect everyone who comes into the same room with them. Despite Stu's clean bill of health, um, they still believe he's going to come down with it. uh, Tonight, tomorrow, the day after. Dietz does not believe there is a true immunity, it seems like. Um, He thinks that the sons of bitches out in California did this job. A little too well for his taste. And at this, Dietz signs off, and he lights another cigarette. So, okay guys, it seems like the prognosis is fairly grim for Eva Hodges, um, and for Stu, according to Dietz, and for the country as a whole. Eva Hodges has been clean, just like Stu, but after lunch, she started showing signs of the super flu. Stu, however, has not, uh, but they're, it seems like they're merely just waiting for it to happen. Um, It feels like Dietz has kind of just accepted the fact that uh, this is unstoppable. And he speaks like a man doing his job, but he's also starting to recognize, yes, time is limited. Uh, He calls Stu by his real name instead of his classified name, code uh, Prince, but he laments that he doesn't give a fuck. Excuse my language. Uh, He admits in his report that he is scared. Uh, He's a, a colonel in the army, and he is openly admitting that this scares him. And he's seeing this all happen up close, um, and there's nothing he can do about it, and there's nothing anyone can do about it, it seems. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, we're going to hit on chapter 15 as well, because this is a short but very effective chapter, and it begins with Patty Greer. And if you recognize that name, it's because she was the nurse who had been trying to take uh, Stu's blood pressure in chapter seven when he decided that he was going to go on strike until he got some answers from somebody in charge. Uh, this, was, this led to Denninger coming to see him, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I love the beginning of the chapter. Uh, the quote is two minutes to midnight. For those who don't know, uh, two minutes to midnight is, um, oh, it belongs to the doomsday clock which is a symbol of the scientific concerns about uh, humanity's possible global annihilation. Uh, Two minutes to midnight, I believe, is the closest that the doomsday clock has ever been to um, midnight. And uh, yeah, that's not a good thing. (laughs) But I love that King started this chapter with that sentence because it's a little on the nose, isn't it? But anyway, so Patty Greer is at work, and she's getting ready to check on Mr. Sullivan and Mr. Hapscomb. Uh, She talks—well, she doesn't talk. She thinks about how, you know, Hap is scared, but he's no problem for her. Uh, She prefers Hap over Stu, who she says only looked at you and wouldn't say boo to a goose. Uh, Mr. Hapscomb, however, was a good sport, and she believes that all patients are either good sports or old poops making trouble for her. Mr. Sullivan, however, would be an old poop and be sleeping. And he would be a mess when she woke him up. In Patty's mind, Sullivan should be thankful that he was getting the best care the government could provide. And free care on top of that. Yeah, so it seems like Patty Greer is a little out of touch with what's happening. Or she just doesn't lack the kind of empathy that I think she should. (laughs) So, but when it's time for Patty to go check on her patients... Um, She makes her way down the hall to the white room. This is where she'll be sprayed and helped into her protective suit. But halfway there, her nose begins to tickle. She sneezes into a handkerchief three times. Funnily enough, despite the situation they're dealing with, Patty does not think much of the sneezing because it's just probably hay fever. Um, This reminds me of Hap and Ralph Hodges back in Arnett both coughing and sneezing and thinking they've just caught on a summer cold, Um, there is a sign in this workplace that says, report any cold symptoms, no matter how minor, to your supervisor at once. And, of course, Patty ignores this. It never crosses her mind, actually, to check in with her supervisor. She understands that they're worried about the sickness uh, spreading outside of the sealed rooms, But Patty knows that it's impossible for even a tiny virus to get inside the self-contained environment of the white suits. So she's safe. Hay fever, nothing to worry about. And uh, the chapter ends with this. Quote, On her way down to the white room, she infected an orderly, a doctor who was just getting ready to leave, and another nurse on her way to do her midnight rounds. A new day had begun. Oh, thank you, Patty Greer. I mean, we all knew this would happen eventually, but just think about how lax this nurse is about her cold symptoms. Um, Given how many have died already, and she brushes her sneezes off as hay fever, the other nurse she infected is on her way to infect others now. The doctor heading home will be infecting their own family should they have one. Um, Same as the orderly. I assume eventually everybody in this facility will meet the same end as the employees that were out in that biological weapons facility in California, Denninger and Dietz included. So these were some uh, very masterful scenes from King. Um, it it doesn't—the length doesn't matter. Uh, this short chapter with Patty Greer was uh, very, very essential. And as much as I love the chapters, uh, the character-centric ch- chapters, I also think that these outside looks at Captain Tripp's, or rather these inside looks, are still as essential and equally fascinating as the others. We're getting a clinical look at what this virus is doing, and even the doctors and members of the army are starting to feel the weight of what's happening and what is going to happen. Thanks to Patty Greer, they're going to be experiencing it all firsthand. Uh, Dietz claims that Stu scared him and placed him you know, shaking in his shoes, even for a few moments, but perhaps now he's going to get a dose of the real thing very soon. Uh, a new day has begun indeed, and that line alone is so simple, yet very chilling for me. And that's the end of chapter 14 and 15. And next week, we are back to a one chapter a week format again. <laughs> and we're shifting out west to Arizona, where we're going to catch up with Polk and Lloyd Henried on their murderous crime spree and get ready for a very different introduction. Um, you know, Maria, Larry's oral hygienist, one night stand, yelled at him that he was not a nice guy. Yeah, but these guys, they're not nice guys. This is, these guys are horrible. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to this, though. This is going to be something different for us. Uh, no more heroes as of this point. So that brings me to the end of episode 14. And I want to thank everybody for listening. If you want to drop me a line, you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. You can find me on social media at The Circle Opens, or you can check out uh the podcast website at thecircleopens.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast and you feel the desire to do so, uh, please leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And the ratings really help and I truly do appreciate every single one. Until then, M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week.